Good morning, it's Eve Vineyard. Before we message today, just um, as I'm sure of you, the Ukraine has been so heavy on my heart and the images are coming out of there. So I just want to take a moment and remember um, what's going on over there. It's the job of the church at times to say something is wrong and we need to pray uh, for, for good to overcome evil. Let's pray. The situation that's going on in the Ukraine right now, Lord, I just pray for all fighting to cease. Lord, we just pray for, um, for your presence to be there. Lord, that the shaking would stop, that the aggression would stop. And Lord, I pray that you would um, be with the people there who are struggling, the families, the children that are running away, Lord. Would you bring them to safety? Would you protect their homes and their belongings? And Lord, would you just um, use the people in the surrounding countries that are bringing them in, Lord, give them resources to help them, Lord. And help us from here, Lord. We feel helpless over here, Lord. But use us to pray, use us to give, use us to um, just speak against injustice, Lord, in all its form. So Lord, we, we just uh, lift them up to you today as we begin in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, do we think we got it? <laughs> I could hear Mike. Mike going in and out. Is it on? Oh, yes, it is. Is that going to feedback maybe? That's an idea. How are we doing? Is that better? Yeah? Okay, I'm just going to go. We got two guys back. Okay, so I don't know if all of you know this, but I'm married to a finance guy. And uh, so he did investments all his life, his career. And um, so when we first got married, he sat me down and he said, I'm going to give you a little lesson on compounding interest. So I didn't know anything about all this stuff. I was a computer geek, so I didn't know about investing. And so, you know, I know most of you probably know how this works, right? If you take $200 a month and you invest it in some kind of S&P uh, fund um, for, for about, uh, that maybe makes about 10% returns per year. Uh, you started at age 20 and then at age 60, the question is how much will you have? I know that uh, Tim over here is calculating this in his brain. Uh, this is what he does. He knows the answer. You're actually going to have $1.1 million by 60. That's the power, the incredible power, compounding interest, just at $200 a month for those years. And so the question is, why aren't all of us millionaires at 60? I mean, all of you are, right? All of you that are at 60 are millionaires because you did this, right? Well, obviously, it's hard, right? It's hard to pull away dollars a month. I know for some of us it shouldn't be. We spend that much on Starbucks. Uh, but, you know, it is hard. Uh, expenses add up. We have a lot to pay money for when we first start out. We certainly can't afford 200 a month. Maybe we can afford not even 100, maybe 50, uh, you know, if we're lucky. But, you know, then more expenses come. We have kids. We have whatever, a house and all kinds of things. And so we just never get around to it. Right? We never get around to that really smart idea, putting $200 a month. Okay, and so um, we are very, it's very human, isn't it, of us to just be kind of like in our moments and just taking care of business right now and not really thinking about investing in the future. And that's just very, very human. Um, and this also applies to the church, not just to our money, but the power of company interest doesn't just apply to how you do finances, but it applies to how the kingdom of God grows. And so I want to say, how do you think about this? Think about the fact that the Christian movement started with 12 disciples. 
Actually, scratch that, 11, because one of them flamed out, right? So one of them, one of them bailed, so we had 11 disciples. Let's assume there were some women also the, with the male disciples. So let's just say one, one man for a woman, you know, just that were followers, true followers of Jesus. 22, 22 original disciples that really got Jesus, that spent time with Jesus. And um, so I had my husband, and there a little spreadsheet for me, and another calculation. So if all of these 22 people, these first 22 people, each led only one person to Jesus every year, and then, you know, whoever they led to Jesus led just one person per year to Jesus over that time, how many believers would there be in 10 years? Turns out to be 11,000 believers in 10 years. And after 20 years, you'd have 11.5 million believers. Now, the early church actually started with 3,000 because remember the first sermon of, of, um, of Peter, right? Thousand came to know the Lord. Half of them did that, uh, brought someone to Jesus. After they came to Jesus, they'd have, hmm, let's see. 115,000 disciples in 10 years, even if half of them didn't do it. So you can just see this power of this. If you look today, in 2022, statistics show that there are 2.4 billion people on this planet who will claim to be a Christian, who claim to follow Jesus. So this is the power of compounding interest. This is how God multiplied his church. By disciples, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. Year after year after year after year. That's how his plan is. That's how the Spirit of God works. And it was, there's an interesting podcast. I encourage you to listen to it. It's called We Are Vineyard. It's being put out by the Vineyard. They just uh, if you're a podcaster, and it has um, Jay Pathak, our national director, and he has different people on, and they talk about different topics. But he had the former national director, Phil Strat, on, they talked about this, and, and Phil referenced John 17, when Jesus was praying, and he was praying to his Father, and he was praying about those disciples, those early disciples, those top, those top 12, and this is what he said. He said, I finished the work you gave me to do. He only really had 12 people, 11 really, who were following him, and he said, I finished the work. This is what he said in John 17. He said, I have revealed to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. His work was done investing in those 12 disciples. Phil puts it, they bet the farm on those guys. Those original guys. They bet the whole farm and they did it. Empowered by the Holy Spirit making disciples, following Jesus' command, go and make disciples of all nations. And they did it, and they multiplied, and now we have this, this faith, this, this faith that we have that is the greatest faith religion in the world. And so, we're going to talk about that today. I'm going to take you know, the incredible example of the facts and how the disciples multiplied. I want to just check real quick. Is this still working all right? I feel like it's going in and out. Check here. Check Do your, I need to switch? Uh, uh, try, try pushing your connection into the box a little bit. Okay, hold on. And check your battery level. Battery? I just... Yeah. Okay, how's that? Test, test, one, 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 two. I can hear it going in and out before, but maybe it's better now. 
Okay. If it, st if it starts doing it again, somebody just shout at me and I'll, I'll switch. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're going to go to the book of Acts. We're going to do like a speed, speed rush through the book of Acts and the discipleship that goes on in the book of Acts. The example of that. And here's what's going to happen. It's gonna, you're going to see how cool it was that God multiplied his church, but it's going to challenge us. Because this is the way the church is meant to be operating. This is the way we're meant to be operating. And so I have a little graphic. So the first graphic starts with Jesus. All right? Um, I had fun with my graphics. You'll see this, this for this week. Okay? So I had, I had a little graphic. So here's Jesus. Of course, it all starts with him. And he was the first discipler. Right? So he mentored 12 disciples. One that he lost. But he spent three years with them. Doing life with them. Doing ministry with them. Uh, eating with them. Talking with them. Teaching them. Correcting them. All of that he did for three years. And two, of course, of his key disciples were Peter and John. They ended up being very strong in the Lord. And so they ended up being leaders in the early Jerusalem church. That was the first real church that took hold and it was in Jerusalem. They were thrown in jail together. We saw that when we looked at Acts 4 and 5 last week or two We saw them getting thrown in jail together. They helped people. They healed people. So they were full of the Spirit and had would taken everything that Jesus had taught them and were using it. Now, one of the people who would have learned about Jesus from Peter and John was somebody by the name of Philip. And in Acts 8, it says there was this great persecution. Stephen was stoned, another disciple. He was stoned to death, and so all the disciples scattered. And in that scattering, Philip went to Samaria. So now we're in Jerusalem. He's going kind of north uh, to Samaria. And there, he had a great ministry of signs and wonders, and many people believed. Here's what it says in Acts 12, 8, 12. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now listen to what happens next. Acts 8, 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem, so they're back down in Jerusalem, Peter and John, they're in Jerusalem, they hear that Samaria had accepted the word of God through Philip. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we have this picture here of a possibly younger believer, Philip, right? He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's excited. He wants to go. He's ready to go. So he's a church player that they send out to Samaria. He goes up there, but doesn't get it quite right. Somehow, for some reason, the Holy Spirit that is not coming on the people. And so now these older believers, Peter and John, they say, we're going to go help him. We're going to mentor him. They go up to Samaria. They work with the believers. They work with Philip. And they, they begin to round out his ministry. They're helping him to succeed. And then it says later that they left. They went back to Jerusalem and Philip continued on. So it's a beautiful picture of mentoring, discipling, training, helping this younger believer really become effective in ministry. All right, so now we can move on. Next comes Barnabas, okay? Barnabas would have also learned the faith from the leadership in that Jerusalem church, from Peter and John. Uh, in Acts 4.36, it says that um, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we see Barnabas as a, as a faithful man, one who is generous, giving money to the disciples. He wants to serve. He loves the Lord. He's an encourager. So he's learning all this from Peter and John in the Jerusalem church. It turns out that now Barnabas is going to be very important in the life of another very important disciple. Anyone know who that is? Paul becomes a very important mentor for Paul. So let's go think about Paul for a minute. 
Remember who Paul was? Paul was first a Jewish person who was persecuting the Christians, right? Throwing them in jail, um, right, you know, rushing after them, throwing them in jail, and then God appears to him in a very sudden moment on the road to Damascus. He gets, he realizes it's Jesus. He converts his life to, to Jesus, decides to follow him. And then what happens is Paul, in his excitement, in his young faith, he starts preaching all over the place and it creates all kinds of chaos. People getting persecuted. It just, you know, and, and so the disciples, those, those leaders say, you know what, for a little while, Paul, why don't you go back home to Tarsus? So they send him out of Jerusalem. They actually send him away. This reminds me a little bit of many young believers I know. I don't know, maybe you relate to this. Um, I think I was like this. When we first come to Jesus, we're so excited. And we just want to tell everybody about it. But we're not very sensitive and not very skillful at it. And we probably turn off more people than we, we, we win um, to the faith. And so this was a little bit of what was happening with Paul. And so God graciously sent Paul a mentor somebody to train him and to help him, and that was Barnabas. And so we have this beautiful moment in Acts 11. More history, okay? Barnabas is, uh, Barnabas is still in Jerusalem, but the church now in Antioch, so now we're even further north, we have Samaria now, the gospel's spreading. The church in Antioch is booming. People are coming to faith in Christ. They are all getting saved, and so Barnabas goes up there to help. And uh, so he's, and he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, it says. And so this is what happens in Acts 11, 20 to 20, 25 to 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So if we go to that, that, that picture again, we have here Barnabas now realizing God, we've got a work happening in Antioch. Things are happening, and I remember that young firebrand Saul who was converted, and now it's called Paul, and he is full of the Holy Spirit, but he needed some training, so I'm going to bring him with me, and I'm kind of trying to imagine the conversation that Barnabas had with Paul, saying something like, I see gifting in you, Paul. I see passion for the Lord. Come with me, and let's work together. Come to Antioch with me. And so for a full year, it says that they worked together. They did ministry together. I would have loved to have heard conversations between Barnabas and Paul. Amen. Barnabas, you get the sense of Barnabas being like just steady and mature. You know, I don't know what it was really like, but you get the sense of him being, he's an encourager, right? So he's encouraging Paul, you're doing great, but you know, let's, let's curb that thing that you do because that kind of tends to make everybody crazy. And you know, like really kind of correcting him, but encouraging him and helping him. And at the same time, Paul's brilliant, okay? And there's obviously clear anointing on his life. And so he knows the scriptures, and I'm sure he's encouraging Barnabas and challenging Barnabas to, to not become old and, and you know, weary of the thing, um, but just but say, come on, you know, this, this is so important. So I just love the thought of the two of them working together. This is the body of Christ. Disciple pouring into disciple, learning from one another, doing ministry together, developing gifts in community, and then multiplying those gifts to go out into the world. That's the multiplication continues. Barnabas and Paul went on their first missionary journey together after this time in Antioch, and then they went up to Galatia, so even more further west now, and they bring along another young believer. Let's get back to our picture. They bring along Mark, or sometimes called John Mark. 
This story doesn't end so well. Mark, about halfway through the journey, decides he can't do it anymore. He leaves. He drops them. And we don't exactly know what happened there. Uh, there's some speculation, but clearly Paul was not happy about it. Uh, because what we know is that when it's time for the second missionary journey, because they did this one journey now without, without Mark, then they finished it, came back, now they went to the second journey, and Paul says, we're not taking Mark. Because he's not reliable. And Barnabas and he had a fight about it, actually. And that just tells you that you don't always have to agree with a mentor. Uh, sometimes you will, you know, have arguments and disagree. And so this is what it says in Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So you see what's happening. Back to our chart again. They're pairing up now, that second line, the second journey. Barnabas is taking Mark going off to Cyprus. And you know what? Barnabas is going to be great for Mark. Because Barnabas seems to be good at these fiery types, right? These emotional types that kind of fall apart and ruin things. That, you know, he's good. He was good with Paul. When Paul was in his early years, he was going to be good with Mark. But Paul instead takes Silas. And Silas, it says, was a strong believer. He was a prophet in the community in Jerusalem. And so, you know, it might be that Paul seems to be good at taking those strong believers and bringing them up to the next level, right? Taking them into something deeper. And so this is what happens. They go off to Syria, Sicilia. They actually go to a lot of different places. They end up over in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. They're all over the place. Paul and Silas have a very hard missionary journey. They end up in jail. They end up beaten. They, they, they preach the gospel. People come to faith. But they, they are working hard for the kingdom together suffering together and praising the Lord together and healing people together. They're working together. Now, along the way, they pick up another new believer. Are you seeing a pattern here? Am I making any kind of point here? That every time you get to a place where you're doing ministry, you're bringing along someone with you. Can I say that again? Because this is a room full of people who do ministry. You are good at it. You're, this church is amazing in ministry. But every time you see in the book of Acts that the gospel, the disciples are doing ministry, they're saying, who's next? Who's a younger believer, a newer believer, maybe one who's a little out of control? But I'm going to take them along with me. I'm going to show them what we do. And you know what? Sometimes they'll work out. And sometimes they won't, but it doesn't matter. You just keep them along. So this is, this is the pattern we're seeing over and over again. So here's, here's what happens. They find another believer in Lystra, and his name is Timothy. We know Timothy. Um, he travels with them through Galatia and Macedonia. This becomes a very, very important mentoring relationship between Paul and Timothy. In fact, later on they end up in Ephesus, and Paul stays in Ephesus three years teaching the people and you know who's mentoring Timothy during that time because Timothy ends up being the pastor of the Ephesian church. He takes that church. So that's an important port city. He needed a lot of investment. And so Paul invested a long time in Timothy. We have two books of Bible, first and second Timothy, that are Paul's letters to this young pastor, teaching him, um, admonishing him, encouraging him. And so that was a really important relationship. On the same journey, Paul meets yet another couple, and this is Priscilla and Aquila. They meet in Corinth, and so they work together as well. In fact, it says that Paul was a temple 
they were, and so he stayed and worked with them. And so they worked together not only in the ministry, but even in their secular work, whatever that was, to, to make money that time they And then they went on, all went on to Ephesus, and then Priscilla and Philip stayed while Paul left. And now Priscilla and Philip presumably working with Timothy, helping him as well. And one more person. Acts 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Paulus, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So see, here we have another passionate guy. He's full of experience, full of love for God. He wants to do it right. He's just got a few things a little off on his theology. He's baptizing in the wrong name. And so Priscilla and Aquila don't rebuke them. They don't say, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Don't, don't teach anymore. No, they say, I see gifting you. I'm encouraged by you. Let me teach you how we really do this. Let me show you a better way. And they walk alongside him. They teach him. And presumably he goes off to do more ministry in Jesus' name. We go back to the picture. Do you see how exciting this is? This is how the church grew. Person upon person, discipling, mentoring, encouraging, taking those younger ones along with them, and then training them up, and then releasing them to do the ministry. Do they do it perfect? No. Are they always, always completely ready when they're released? No. But they're doing the ministry. We let them do it, and then they go on, and they teach the next person, and the next person, and the next person. That is how the kingdom of God grows, people. That is how God wants to do his work. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through disciples. That, that idea of compounding interest, and the compounding effort of all of us, each one of us, disciple others who are disciple others who are disciple others. That's the ministry. So I just think this is very exciting. I just want to take a more minute and just uh, and say this is how our church needs to operate. This is what we need to be doing. We need to be thinking about that. Especially as we get older, who are we bringing alongside? Who are we deciding? Who's learning from us? We have so much insight the older we get. I often think, yeah, smarter now than I ever have been. But Who's, who's coming along? Who's coming along? The silence. What key characteristics do we see in these relationships? A few quick things. First, they're close interpersonal interactions. They're one-on-one, they're two-on-one, they're three people. I'm reminded a little bit of what um, uh, Pastor John said last week when he spoke to us. And he said, remember he said, I, I encourage the church to do tripods. Three people getting together, studying the word, or praying together, or encouraging each other, or doing ministry together. And he talked about that own tripod in his own life, and it was so meaningful to him. And then you see them all through Acts. That's very scriptural. Three people coming together: Paul, Silas, Timothy, Apollos, Silas, Aquila. Three, three sons coming together, encouraging one another. Let's study the word. Let's let's do ministry. Let's have lunch. Let's have coffee. Let's spend time together. And they did it whether they were tent making, whether they were doing ministry, or they were worshiping. They were together, and they were teaching, and helping, and punishing one another. The second thing I see here is that God matched the right people together. We don't all get along with all the same kind of people. And I, and I do love the fact that I think of Barnabas as really like 
the kind of wild and crazy ones. The ones that are a little on the edge, you know, they've got a lot of passion, but they're just a little out of control, and he needs to kind of settle them down. So they can focus and do what they want to do. Meanwhile, Paul, who I think is more of a, you know, big picture strategic guy, and he's bringing on the leaders that are going to lead big things, Silas and Timothy, and he's, he's able to take them up to the next level. What does this really look like? What is a sacrificial living? He, he modeled it with Silas. They were both thrown in prison together. And he modeled that type of thing together. So God will match the right people together. You may not be able to encourage everyone, but there's somebody out there who you can encourage. Who you can disciple and bring alongside. The last thing I see here is that it was very intentional and ministry and yes. The disciples were always looking around for people who had a heart for God and who were like, you know, who am I out? Right? What should I do? I should switch, right? It's, it's getting annoying. Yes? Switch, okay. Okay, better? There we go. All right. They were very intentional about looking for people to bring along. It was constant. It was part of doing ministry. They didn't just do ministry alone. They're like, I can't do this. It's a realization. There's a humility there. We can't do it alone. Debbie can't run grocery ministry all by herself. She can't. She needs to be bringing people along. Um, you know, home group leaders. You can't run a home group by yourself. You need to bring people along who will then learn how to do it with you. And then, and then they will be able to maybe do a home group at one point. And you can do a different kind of thing. You know, whatever ministry we're in, whatever we're doing, we can't do it alone. And so there's a humility here recognizing that. And so they're seeing, who else can I bring along? And who's the next generation that's going to carry it after me? Because those of us in our 50s and 60s aren't going to minister to those in their 20s and 30s. As, as effectively as some people in their 20s and 30s. So we need to raise up some 20s and 30s. We're going to minister to those people that age. This is, this is how the ministry goes. This is how the body of Christ goes. Paul said this to Timothy, and I love this, in 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Did you catch how many generations there are there? There's four. Because there's Timothy, I mean, and there's Paul, who then poured it into Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you teach people who will then be equipped to what? Pour it into others. Four generations right there. He says, don't forget to multiply. Don't forget, that's what we're meant to be doing. Now let me ask you a question. Does the church tend to operate this way? The American church. Not much. Now, yeah, I got more creative with my, my art here. I should have engaged one of our many good graphic artists, but I didn't have time, so I just did it myself. So I've got a little picture for you of a typical church, my little stick figures, okay? The typical American church has a pastor and a couple leaders, and they pour out ministry to people. Teaching, pastoral care, evangelism, discipleship, and there's all the people. They're all happy because they're getting all ministered to, right, by those pastors and leaders. And then, if they do a good job of it, and they've got a pretty good pastor, a pretty good leader, and they're charismatic, and they're strong, and they're fun to be around, whatever, then it gets bigger, and so you have more people, 
And you have to have more leaders to push out more ministry of teaching and evangelism and discipleship and pastoral care to all those people who are getting all this great ministry and having a great time. Is there a problem with this? The problem is the ministry is flowing from the top. And it's flowing from the top down, and it's dependent on the gifts and the ministry of the people on the top. And what's happening is nobody at the bottom is multiplying, they're just consumers. This is why you have people who say, well, I don't like that pastor leaders anymore, so I'm going to go to this church. Because this pastor, this leader, feeds me more over here. It's a consumer mentality that I'm just meant to receive. That's why I'm a church. And what happens is that many, many gifts of the body are not in use. And every person who's on that bottom is stunted because they're meant to be pouring it out and passing it on and discipling others and also ministering back up to the other people that are around them. That's what they're meant to be doing. And the other problem with this is that the people at the top burn out because it can't be done. They don't have enough gifts in that little top section to pour out on all those people. There's gifts from all the body are all meant to be doing the work of the kingdom together. And so I hope I don't have to tell you that this is not the vineyard model. Um, in the vineyard, what is it? Everyone? Everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play. We're all meant to be ministering one to another. We're all meant to be using our gifts. Um, that is what the vineyard is like. Of course, there's leaders and leaders to help equip and, and prepare and teach and all that, but it's so that every person who has a gift, which every one of you does, is using it. And is using it not just for your own benefit, benefit and because it feels good to use a gift, but for, to multiply, to disciple others, to bring others into the kingdom. Kingdom, the multiplying work of the kingdom is meant to be done by the royal priesthood, the entire body of Christ. That's us. So a successful church looks more like this. Now this graphic I'm really embarrassed about because it's really bad. Let's see if we can get to the next one. There we go. This is kind of a mess. I didn't know how to say it to, to represent this. I'm sure there's a better way to represent this. But a healthy church has, still has leaders. It still has a pastor. That, there's a function for that role. But all the people are also, therefore, doing the ministry of teaching and pastoral care and evangelism and discipleship one to another. The arrows are going all over the place because they're ministering to each other. They're also discipling there are many, you know, the, the, the colors okay, are meant to represent the different generations. Okay, have disciples, so, you know, the black, the ones that are colored black are going to be discipling and the mentoring of the blue people and the blue people are discipling and mentoring the green people. It's, a, it's multiplying. It's multiplying. And it's kind of a mess because the church is not an org chart. Okay? It's okay. We're not a business. I mean, there's business elements, but it's okay that it's a little mess. There's going to be all kinds of people, some volunteers, some paid, some, yeah, just we're all ministering to each other using our gifts. But this is how God wants us to operate. When we operate like this as a church, every person doing their part, every person multiplying, thinking, how can I disciple? How can I pour out? How can I see? Who am I seeing? That, that it needs encouragement that I can say, I see you, and you have gifts, and come walk with me. Who, when we start to do that, then the church multiplies and grows. It's exponential. Amen. And that's what God wants to do here at Kansas Community and in every other church in this community. This is what God wants us to do. So I have two questions for you. Two questions I want you to ponder and take away from today. The first question is, who's pouring into me? Am I growing? Because it's not only that we pour out, right? We can be poured into. 
And some of you might say, I don't know if I've ever written a report in Spanish. Um, let's change that. <laughs> doesn't matter how old you are, we can learn from one another. Um, every one of us has gifts for the body, and, and, and what, we, what we need to be able to say to God is, I want to be used by you, Lord, so show me how I can learn. How can I grow in these gifts? I, you know, I, I didn't think of how, but I want to use them. So help me grow, and then look around and say, who do I respect in their walk with Christ? Maybe who has gifts that are similar to mine or is working in areas that I would like to be able to do that? Who even is in a career that is similar to mine? I'd love to talk to them about how do I really operate in the business world, in the finance world, and be a Christian. You know, look around at who you see and go up to them and say, I would love to get to know you and pick your brain about how you do this. And just ask them. And you know what? They're going to be psyched. <laughs> I know it seems like a weird ask. But to ask someone to pour into you, to, to, to speak to you about what they do, how they follow Jesus as a married man or married woman, how they parent children, how they work in the workplace, how they do ministry, go, ask. Um, it's, it's something we need to not be shy about. It's a powerful ask. Many years ago, when I was in my late 30s, um, I had a young woman come up to me. She was about nine years younger than me. I knew her. She was one of our babysitters, actually. I had three little boys at the time. And uh, she came up to me at a, at a leadership retreat, and she said, um, I really respect your walk with the Lord, would you mention me? And I was kind of startled by that, because no one had ever asked me that before. And I didn't even really know how to mentor a person, but I was like, sure, you know, why not? I was very flattered, actually. It's a very sweet ask. Um, and I was very flattered. And so we got together, and, you know, I asked, my husband's is great, so I talked to him about what to do, and other people, you know, so I, I, we studied the scripture together, I showed him how I studied the scripture, we prayed a lot together, we used to worship in my living room, we would just turn on music and worship, um, we would do ministry together, and I know all of that really taught her some things, but I also taught her some things I didn't mean to teach her. See, she was coming to know me as a mom of three little kids, and I do think when she asked me to mentor her, she had me on just a little bit of a pedestal, and um, once she came into my house, I kind of toppled off the pedestal because I had three little boys running around. Um, the house looked like a disaster area all the time. I mean, it was always full of toys everywhere. Um, it was always a mess. Routinely, and she always seemed to be here at this moment because she'd come over after school. She was a teacher, so she'd come over after school, hang out for a couple hours. So it'd be like five o'clock, and I'd go, "Oh shoot, I haven't even thought about dinner yet." I got three little kids, you know, and so I'm like frantically grabbing something out of the freezer, trying to defrost it, you know, trying. So I was always kind of like a little bit behind on everything. Um, I was frequently yelling at my kids because they were three little boys, uh, and they were, you know, always making trouble. And so I would yell at them, and then I'd have to go apologize to them. Talked to her about that, you know. So she was seeing everything the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, how I managed as a, as a Christian woman who was in ministry, but also struggling, you know, trying to figure out how to be a good mom. And she listened and she learned and she, and she watched. And um, every now and then she'd try to help me a little bit because she's very tiny. She'd say things like, I wonder if once the kids all went to bed, you just took 15 minutes and put all the toys away, and that way you would feel better, you know, in the morning when you wake up. And I would just look at her like, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> That's not happening. I don't know why it couldn't happen. It was so logical. I'd be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Somehow it just never happened. I moms understand this. It's just too, it was just too much. I couldn't do it even after they went to bed. Um, and the funny part about that is a few years later, she had her own baby. 
said, Beth, I repent. <laughs> I repent for judging you. I repent for thinking that this was easy and you know, made it look easy. I'm falling apart. So, so that's the kind of relationship we had. We were honest. We were real. Um, we were humble with each other. We shared life together. Now she's one of my best friends. We are no longer mentor-mentee, but really good friends. Um, and, and encourage each other still in the Lord. Now, not every mentoring relationship is going to end up with a lifelong friendship. But every mentoring relationship you can learn from. And you can hear. And you just, sometimes it's you that needs to be bold to ask. Say, I, I want this. Lord, show me you. Show me you. Next time you're in a place in your spiritual journey where you think, I'm just not growing, this is a great way to grow. Find someone who's just a little ahead of you and, and kind of latch on to them. Say, I want to learn. Now, the second question, though, so that's the first question, is who, who can pour into me? Am I growing in my faith? But the second question is just as important, and that is, who am I pouring into? Am I making disciples? Or am I like those little sick people at the bottom that are just consuming and it's stopping with me? Who am I pouring into? It may be that there's people outside the church that you're meant to just love on, to serve, to care for, to be friends with, maybe times to talk about how God has ministered in your life and how God has transformed your life, to, to be a witness, to be his hands and feet. That is part of discipling. That's part of that multiplication. But we have to, if that's the case, then those relationships can't just be a quick high in, in the driveway as you drive into, into your house and close the garage door. Right? We have to create a relationship and get close to people and have coffee and have them over uh, after work. And so it could be that. It could be there's also people in the church that you're called to mentor and encourage. Look around. Who's a little bit behind you, either life stage or maybe in a walk with Christ? Who could you encourage? Who, who do you like hanging out with? Who, who is somebody that you could um, invite to walk alongside you in ministry and in life? Who could do life with you? Years ago, we tried to get a lot of our older women, and I was in the uh, head of women's ministry for a time, and we tried to get a lot of the older women to mentor the younger women. And it was interesting that we could not get the older women to do it. Younger women were all ready. They're like, give me a mentor, please. Um, but, but the older women wouldn't do it. You know why? Because the older women would say, well, why would they want to hang out with somebody like me? I'm just an old lady. And, you know, they all have friends of their own, and why would they want to hang out with me? So there's like an insecurity these women say, I've got nothing to offer. Look, you don't have to have your act all together. You don't have to be perfect, but you have something to offer. Those behind you are looking and saying, please help me. I'm, I'm raising kids, I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm trying to build a career. Help me, I want to know. I want to know. We wanted to hear from them. Pastor John talked about last week, people long for community. So be bold, be bold and ask. The practical way to do this is just to be thinking about whatever you're doing, doubling up. Just double up. If you're taking kids to the park, double up. Bring a friend, bring someone with you. If you're leading a small group, double up. Find someone who will do it with you. If you're doing, I say this all the time to the staff, who's your second? Whatever event you're doing, if it's a, a, a children's ministry thing, if it's a worship thing, who's your second? Who's coming along with you? Who are you training up? Who's coming with you on that? Um, do it together. And it might not always work out perfectly. You might end up with a mark who kind of bails that way. That's all right. Mark came back, by the way. Mark proved himself strong, John Mark. Uh, later on, Paul said he was a great help to him. So Paul grew up and got whatever training and mentoring he needed, probably from Barnabas, and um, came back and was 
really productive servant of the Lord and helpful to the kingdom. So we're not in charge of how the people we invested turn out. We're just in charge of the investing, that we're doing the investing. So let me just close this up by reminding us of the last thing Jesus said to us before he left. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The church exists to give away to others, to pour into others what he has so richly given to us. Amen? Amen. That's why we exist to send it out, to pour it out. I started this message with numbers, with uh, how much money you could put in, get out of a certain investment, and you could get an investment out of it. So I'm inviting you, there's an invitation this morning, to become part of the Axe Investment Club. You don't have to put any money in. You don't have to put any dollars or coins. You just get to invest your life. Get to invest your life in God's kingdom and in God's people. And man, the returns are amazing. Receive prayer, but I respond to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I just want to pray.